Welcome, Wheatland family and friends. Thanks again for joining me on Cross Reference, a new-ish podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. I'm Luke LaDuke, senior pastor here at Wheatland, and of course, I am joined again this week by our co-host, Dr. Dan Spanger. He is professor of history at LBC, and of course, more importantly, an elder here at Wheatland Presbyterian Church. And I have so enjoyed our time together digging a little bit deeper into the sermon with him each week uh, as we tackle questions and explore some connections that are coming out of our sermons here at Wheatland. And in this episode, we spend some time digging around this fourth sermon in our Lenten series on the parable of the lost sons. And in this uh, verse 20 and 21 of chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, the scene shifts to the actions of the father in the story. And we see him welcoming his son back from his wanderings from the far country. And on this episode today, we spend some time exploring the idea of exile, where the son has been, what he's returning to. And we ask a few questions. What do we mean by exile? Is it moral or is it relational? And if it's both, which you could have guessed we were going to say, how can we hold these two things together? Well, again, thanks for joining in on these discussions. I know I am personally finding them to be wonderful tools of reflection here in the middle of this sermon series, and I hope you're being encouraged and challenged as well. Thanks so much for coming along. We are in Luke, Pastor Luke in Luke. Is there a bit of a I don't know, is there a desire to like preach yeah, out of your own book? I, I mostly like to just preach out of this gospel because I find it the most canonical other than... The, <laughs> it's far know. more canonical than the other I one. don't buy into that Markin theory. I'm all about Luke. <laughs> Luke started it up. This is, yeah, this is Luke's job. Well, maybe that makes sense of the amount of time. I just want to say, given the amount of time you spend you know, <laughs> in certain books, this is, yeah. it's starting to appear like you're, you have preferences. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've had other people note that you're not the first, and that might mean <laughs> I, I was uh, saying something original. My biases are uh, are are bleeding through here. <laughs> well, the the this week in the sermon, you're 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 moving on in the in this discussion about the the two lost sons. Um, we're looking at the first lost son here, and I what what struck out to me. Um, in your discussion here is that you you reframed for us like what the parable is about it's two lost sons and then you reframe this idea about whether it was true repentance in the sons and that's a complicated subject right but i think this one then you reframed a little to what the coming back was and what the leaving was yeah so a lot of us see that as a self-imposed sort of thing he decided to leave because he wanted his money when you use the word exile you you are expanding this concept and then you mm. went back into the history of redemption to sort of unpack what exile is yeah. um and sort of saying that that's how we connect to it is that yeah. this is exile. Can you can you unpack it? What, how how is this seen as exile, and how does that help us connect to it? As yeah, I when I begin and and by the way, I think that is a fundamental shift, a different way to read the story than uh, at least I was given. And and I didn't come up with this way to read the story. By the way, I'm just reading and gleaning yeah. from other places. So this is not original to me. I'm, but I do think that's a fundamentally different way to see what's going on in the story, because as as I said, a lot of focus 
previously for me had been on this kid um, doing this and, and running away from his father. And, and the focus was on the prodigal mm. and, and his sin. Um, but I think what changed for me, uh, as of course I'm reading other, other writers about this, is the father's first response. And that is mm. to give in to the son's demands mm. and to see that as a way that God has always uh, brought his judgments that are just and true to his children. Um, and he's doing that again here. And so Romans 1 is sort of that right. classical New Testament text of giving them over to what they desire sort of thing as a form of judgment in order to bring them back. And that's that's sort of where I began with this idea of Exodus here is that once I just... Once you see that the father in the beginning of the parable gives the son what he demands, hmm. then it becomes, for me anyway, the light bulbs go off into the story that I know from Adam and Eve, as I talked about in the sermon all the way through. So that's to me what it hinges on is seeing, seeing the father giving the son what he demands rather than reasoning with him or cajoling him or anything like right. that. Well, that then that that helps and, and I think when you said that's the way we connect to it I'm thinking yeah because I, I don't I've never asked my dad for money he doesn't have any anyway um, <laughs> and I never ran off and did all those sorts of things so prodigality if that's what this is about I don't connect quite well to that I mean I, I can I can abstractly say well I sin and these sorts of things but right. if what you're saying is and I and this I think this hits more home is that God says if you if you choose sin if you choose to be loyal to someone else I'm going to let you go there, that that becomes our judgment. That, that explains a lot more of my own life. Maybe not the exact things that he did. Exactly. Yeah. Other allegiances, but the same right, exactly. sort of heading. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, um, you know, if you were, and I did this a little bit, but if you really spend time in the Old Testament narrative of Israel as my son, um, you know, that <clears throat> that lends a richness to this that I haven't even gotten into um but the idea of israel as god's son which is of course what's going on here uh he's talking to scribes and pharisees his people who who are there and that he's inviting into his joy uh but they refuse to come so yeah i think i think that is a really profound point when that settled for me that this is a story of exile um in order to bring the son home then that, that began to open it up in a new way. So that's a way of, I mean, that's then, would you, is it fair to say that's, that's what sin is? Sin, because I, I think a lot of us would say, well, sin is a moral problem, exile is a political problem. Well, you're exiled because you didn't follow God's laws, so you're exiled from Israel. But a Christian, we really, but I think what you seem to be doing is pulling these two things together and saying, you know, when, when, we, when we, as you say, allegiance, we turn away from God to our passions, our pleasures, whatever the allegiance is, that's right. a political move in one sense, mm. leave God. And yeah. now our sin is actually itself exile, which I, I think for some of us, that's a little new way of looking at it. I, yeah. It sounds biblical to me. I think it is actually, but yeah. it just sounds a little new. Yeah, the, the, um, maybe, the, maybe the switch is sin as relational versus sin as immoral. Maybe, maybe mm -hmm. that's another way to think about it, especially if we're going to sort of look at this parable here. One of the things that we've said a couple times, I, I've 
sort of as a castaway comment, it's not about the money. It's not about what was squandered. In fact, I was reading this week, Dan, in some of my studies that that idea that what the prodigal did was immoral mm -hmm. as far as that's only brought up by the elder son. Interesting. In other words, there's um, some word studies in the Hebrew and in the Greek um, that uh, delve into the idea and make a, a pretty strong case for, I thought. I'm not, because I'm not a linguist, I can't make <laughs> pronouncements on these things. I can follow right. some of the logic and all of that, but you know, I had Greek and Hebrew in seminary. I did very well in them, and I still, they mean nothing. <laughs> well, that's a whole nother world of study. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, but but they make a very strong case that the um, squandered, the, the reckless living there hmm. actually has, doesn't have anything to do with prostitutes or drunken orgies or anything hmm. like that. It has more to do with this unwise spending of the money and that the elder son is the one who puts it in, in these moral categories. Hmm. He's already angry. Uh, and he's the one who forces these moral categories on the younger son. So it's not even really, and all that to say, th that to me is compelling um, that it's not simply about the money mm. or, and it, there's not even really any hint, um, at least until we get to the elder son, that it was about prostitutes and meth labs or whatever, <laughs> but, um, but that it was about that broken relationship. So my fundamentalist brethren and sisterin, are going to find this very distressing because this seems to be a very good moral story you you've right. done bad things and been immoral right. and and to to go then where you were going on the second part of this to me where you're talking about what restoration is mm. if we start that it's an immoral problem then the restoration is a moral restoration and we can see right. them coming back to innocence which doesn't seem to actually from this reading be the point of his yeah. restoration right not yeah. that it's not included but it doesn't seem yeah. to be the point of it and i I, I might touch on this this week, and I might have just mentioned it last week, but the father doesn't say anything about the morality mm. of, of the son and where he'd gone and what, what he'd been doing. And, um, and then when you get into, uh, we're going to come back to the elder brother after Easter. Mm. So we're going to have a Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, two sermons on the um, post appearances, post resurrection appearances of Jesus. And then we're going to come back to the elder brother. But I think what is going to frustrate the elder brother more than anything is that the father will not make it a moral uh, dilemma in welcoming the welcoming this younger son back in the way that the elder brother seems to insist that it has to be hmm. there has to be something said for for the immorality um as he points out that, i mean that, this seems to go with what you've been saying about the other two parables before this that it was the restoration of i mean say the relation between the coin and the woman or the sheep but i mean in one sense the focus is on the joy of exactly. the person receiving back exactly. the lost thing not that exactly. the coin is now clean Right. Or the sheep is no longer in the thorn bushes. <laughs> right. But somehow it's the it's the joy of the receiver. So the, all of heaven rejoices. I mean, that that speaks yeah. to what you're saying, that this is a relational restoration. Yeah, exactly. That is yeah. If if there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents, and that seems to be the theme hmm. in the first two 
that doesn't seem to be. That's the stated <laughs> point of that little sheep and then coin vignette parable. Um, it makes me want to go back and read, okay, so this is another sense in which there is joy in heaven over one mm. sinner who repents. So it's not about, you know, and one, at one level, yes, the younger son is a sinner. Of course he is. Um, mm. But the focus is on the joy of repentance, and it's the thing that the elder brother cannot. And it makes me think, although the end of the parable is an invitation, it makes me think, that the invitation is never accepted mm. or Jesus is hinting that, but you won't come in. There's if, if I, again, I don't know. That's, that's well, but wait a minute. That, I, I think this is, sorry, I mean, wait a minute, but no, go ahead. But, but I think that highlights what you're saying is that the, it's the relationship that is to be celebrated in restoration. And the older son can't see that that's the actual value. And it's interesting because the father sort of makes that claim. It's not that, you've always had money. It's whatever I've had has always been yours. No, our, our relationship is the thing that's always been good. And that should be your joy, which doesn't seem to be his joy at all. Exactly. But that's yeah. what's being restored here and needs to be celebrated. Yeah, precisely. And I, I, yeah, I think that is without a doubt the focus of this, but mm -hmm. you, you bring up a good point about um, exile. And so we're talking about exile versus um uh, reconciliation, maybe. Right. Um, and I think the question is finding that exile in the relationship versus finding it because of these other circumstances, the, mm -hmm. the moral categories or whatever, the moral categories brought on exile. No, that's, that's never been it. I was talking to someone this past week and um, who is really wrestling with uh, actually we were talking about the Galatian sermon series hmm. and and they were still pondering how is it that Paul talks about the law and he seems to talk about it as such a negative thing like they're still wrestling which I think is a like a really great place to wrestle hmm. and ask questions about and I think what we forget when we start talking about the law is that this idea of sacrifice which the entire law is built around, right? Mm -hmm. Predates the Mosaic law. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, sacrifices from the beginning. And I know you thought a little bit about this and, mm -hmm. and, and you and I have even, well, you're, you've written some things about this that you and I are talking about. Right. But that the idea of moral failure post Genesis 3 is built into the whole system. Hmm. And, and um, failure to keep the law was not failure to be perfect. Hmm. Failure to keep the law was failure to live in the law through the ritual of sacrifice and restoration hmm. that was already provided for well before the law is ever given to Moses. So like, when does sacrifice as a way to restore relationship between God and human. When does that come into the story? But that's true, because we, we see moral law sometimes as, as a don't. It's an obstacle. Our relationship would be fine if you just didn't, you know, if you kept the law, it'd be fine. So it's almost seen as a, as a negative, stop doing bad things. But if it comes before the law in that sense, you're saying that the law is actually God's pattern for restoration 
right. in relationship, which because of our sin, we can't, which is why the atonement matters as much as it does. Exactly. The law is not our enemy in that regard. Paul even calls it, right? Like a, right. an instructor, a guide. Yeah, uh, our our um, that uh, idea of tutor or schoolmaster right. is the old King James, but guardian is is the way it's translated in um, yeah Galatians. But that's other podcasts from other sermons. <laughs> but the idea is that at the heart of the law is restoration of relationship, not morality. So, so we're in exile, and this is this is one of the questions I had for you out of the sermon because I was wrestling with the way you were describing exile. Exile is, seems to be, and so you say relational, I'm using the word political, which may not okay. be the yeah. right way to say it, but exile always seems like this political thing. You're in a different space. You're not in right. Israel, you're in Babylon. Right. You're then using exile relationally. So as Christians, we believe that, you know, as Protestants specifically, we've our relation with God has been fully restored in the atonement so that that's been done but yet we're still in exile so if, if we had some weird imagery we're in the pigsty but now our relation was with god has been restored but we're still in the pigsty so. yeah right so or we're still yeah we're still outside the feast the feast right right, right. If, if we look at our parable sure. nobody's singing or dancing yet not that i know of yeah <laughs> on a sunday morning in worship yeah exactly um and so how and are I, we in exile then yeah so I, I think there's a couple of ways in which um, we're in exile. And first is the fact of we are living in this. I mean, Paul unpacks a lot of this. And of course, he's building off of, of, of the whole story of exile and return. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's me. I'm pretty convinced that this is Paul's huge paradigm for mm -hmm. all of his theological stories is that Jesus is the one who is coming back and leading us as a new Moses in a new and grand exile into the place that we were meant to be, blah, blah, blah. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but there's a lot there that I'm not going to get into. But I think the way in which we're still in exile is all things have not been put back together yet. Hmm. And so there is when we talk about what the father has done, so this past Sunday, let's take that for instance. Um, this is how I've thought about the way we're still in exile. If we were to stop with the story um, where I stopped on Sunday in verse 21, they're on the outskirts of the community. And there has been this scene of reconciliation between father and son. And yet, they have not addressed the hostilities and the anger that are still present in the community. And so we'll see this Sunday that there is movement. Now the father begins to direct the community in how they must respond to this reconciliation between him and his son. In other words, the community must respond in the way that the father responds to the son. And he orders that because he starts telling his servants what to do. I'm really going far afield here and making some stretches, but I think this is the time in which we find ourselves um, as exiles. Our relationship 
to the Father has been definitively restored in that movement, like I talked about Sunday. That move means that it has been restored. But all of this has not been cleaned up in the community yet. Real brokenness exists mm -hmm. in the community because of the real actions and the real dissipation of material inheritance and estate and all of that. And so all of that is not been recovered yet. Mm. But the vertical has been definitively done. And now that's working out in the relationships around. And that's where we're going to go Sunday. Um, but it's this tension. It's this. And now I'm going back to Paul. But it's this tension between what has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus mm. and what has not happened mm. in the restoration where um, uh, the restoration of all things and new creation so that the world, the community is still groaning for everything to be put right. Mm. And we within it get caught up in that groaning and working and living out of the reality that we have been restored. And yet we are longing and working and waiting for the restoration of all things. Not that we bring it about by our work, but we long and reach for it. And I think that's what I'm thinking about as saying we're in exile, mm. but we're not in exile. Our, our relationship to the Father has been worked out in one sense. And yet, that means that we are brought into his kingdom and something mm. new is growing and developing and coming to fullness. And that automatically puts us as outsiders with any other worlds that seek to force their authority and power mm. in 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 our space in our place it, 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 does that make yeah, sense it does i mean it's a really hard one to get the mind around because you know i think we i think this is probably the truth in the christian life in general paul i think wrestling in Romans seven with this right i can't i can't do i can do the things i don't want to do that mm -hmm. sin just had the old man i think paul uses that the very interesting creation decreational metaphor there's an old man yeah. and a new man both warring this out uh, Steve Nichols, um, who used to teach here, uh, would say that uh, people are fallen and falling. So they're the falling fallen, right? They fall once, but then we continue. If I reverse that, it almost sounds like you're, we're the restored restoring, or mm, we've been yeah. restored in one sense, but but now there's this, because I, I think if, if I think of my sin, and I don't know if you're asking us to do this, but if I'm seeing my sin and my struggles, wherever they may lie, and you mentioned quite a few of them, there's sexual things and political things, yeah. heart things and relational all of these are, are us accepting exile from the mm -hmm. father in a place of exile. So there's a double mm -hmm. bad, right? We're, we're, in a, we're far right. away from home. We're in a culture that accepts all of those things and wants right. to do them. And then we also accept them. And then we distance ourselves from the father in the process. So is, is our sin, can you, can you tell me that my sin is, is self-chosen exile? Is, mm -hmm. that, is, that, is that what I'm wrestling with? Is, am yeah. I wrestling to accept the world's exile and join it. Is that, is that what's happening here? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that is a key to um, understanding the way in which God brings us to himself mm. based on the story of Israel mm. and, and actually based on our own experience as well. Mm. But, but really based on the story of Israel is that oftentimes, and I don't know why this has become clearer for me more lately i don't know what it is but i've been thinking about this a lot that one of the because it's in the scriptures and it should i should have been thinking about this more uh readily than i have been 
Uh, I should this should have been at the sort of tip of my tongue in a sense, but the way that God often judges his people is by giving them over to the very thing that they insist upon. And I sort of had undertones of that on Sunday where I talked about Israel insisting on idolatry. Mm. And so, okay, here's the Assyrians and here's the Babylonians for you. You get them in spades. Um, insisting on quail, okay, what, how does it say it in, in, the, in the Old Testament narrative there in Exodus till it's coming out their noses or something like that? Um, you insist on meat and, and you get quail coming out your nose. Although if I insisted on meat, I would have been thinking more of like a porterhouse or something. Not necessarily. And that come out one's nose? Quail, that but, bad? Yeah. Maybe that's but, why I chose quail. Yeah, exactly. But um, so, yeah, I think that when we start, when we understand that it, it is a judgment of God because this is, we are being given what we've chosen. We don't often think of those as judgments, though. You know, we think that Liberality. if we get what we've wanted, then we think, oh, well, this is working out for me, in a sense. <laughs> so, and, and that, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish no, up. and I was just going to say, how do we think about getting what we want as judgment? Now, of course, in every sense, that is not like if you wanted a new car and you got it because your old one was shot. That's not a judgment necessarily, but um, how do we begin to rethink our desires uh, and what it is we're actually desiring beneath the things that we're longing for? Um, I, th I think those are really important questions. I think they are, yeah, because I, yeah, because the, if you moralize it, that's a whole different calculation, right? This is morally right, morally wrong. Or, or you're asking, is this something I'm doing out of a desire to live into my relationship with the Father? So I think it's a whole different way of looking at it's like, I guess your parent, you know, you, you know how to do things to stay out of trouble. I don't want to get hit. I don't want to lose, you know, an opportunity to do something. But do you see doing it as as actually helping to develop your relationship with your father? Right. I mean, that, it's a you, yeah. you may end up doing the same thing, but the motivation becomes quite different if you're yeah. just trying to stay out of trouble or you really want to cultivate a relationship with your dad. Yeah. And I think it, it's the same way with our children, isn't it? I mean, you flip that around. Um if you took every opportunity to cor um, correct your children, and I'm speaking from experience here, <laughs> sadly, if you That's correct- one with experience. I guess. Yeah, if, if you take every opportunity to deal with, uh, let's say you set a category for disrespect. I, I don't care, you must never disrespect my authority. Mm. If, if that's the way you want, you want to do it. And then you take every opportunity to correct all forms of disrespect that your child displays. You might have picked, <laughs> you might be right, but you may have harmed the relationship in the long run. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, and, and, I, and I think, yeah, so thinking relationally rather than thinking just strictly morally is, is, a, is, is an important shift. Well, and it, it's the way we look at the crucifixion, the atonement, really. This is not Jesus just paying a debt. Well, that's true. That's really insufficient to say he is breaking with the Father so that we might be restored to the Father. Mm -hmm. The implication of that is we must be made righteous. But to, mm -hmm. it almost seems like if that's where you stop the story, you really missed what this is actually about. Yeah. And I, and I think that's really important. Maybe we've touched on this before in our conversation, but if you keep the story of the gospel 
in this small, narrow, not small uh, as in it doesn't have huge implications, but if the gospel is truncated down to how you get your debt paid for mm. rather than the big cosmic implications of God becoming man and taking evil on himself in order to overcome evil and put down all, you know, so just the big cosmic implications of the gospel and the way that that works out into every sphere, you will be, your life will be categorically caught up in the moralities of, of, of sin, uh, hung up on that idea of morality versus relationship perhaps i think there's a way in which those two are connected i don't want to say i don't want to connect them on a one-to-one -one ratio but i imagine that part of what we see in um or what we've experienced at times in certain places of uh, american evangelicalism as an obsession with morality has been because our gospel has been some total of a a, a thing that fixes our immorality mm -hmm. Can I use a logical categories here, which I maybe are too refined, but helpful, possibly that it's necessary and not sufficient that, mm, because yeah. I think that the, the alternative, which I've heard, and you can see in some places, Rob Bell may being a really bad example of this, or mm. Richard Rohr being a bad example of this, is start to say, well, it's all relational, it doesn't have anything to do with the moral stuff anymore. Right. Jesus just wants to love you, he doesn't care what you do or who, who you sleep with. But then that means that the atonement's not necessary, and that Paul doesn't allow that. Christ doesn't allow exactly. that. The history of Israel doesn't allow that. Yeah. Nothing about the biblical story allows that. Right. Yeah. So it is necessary it's that there's necessary. atonement, but that is not a sufficient explanation for what's yeah. going on. Exactly. And and I think <clears throat> I think that's really what our work as a church is, <laughs> is trying to hold these things together and accent accent one thing when it needs to be said here without giving up what is at the heart of it over here. And, and it's so hard. We can never say everything at the same time. Right. And so what we find ourselves doing are speaking to certain, certain areas. And I've found like, this is just an aside now getting off the main trail. Um, but I've found that I've had discussions, let's say after a sermon where I have said something and I have in mind what I think is a, a very, uh, let's say I say something about social justice, let's say. I, I say something in a sermon about um, what God is doing is reconciling the world in Jesus, or I, I don't know, but I say something about um, what it means to care for the least among us. Mm -hmm. And I think depending on where you've lived and what your lived experiences have been, mm -hmm. you could hear me say that and think, oh, well, Luke just woke up or I, I don't know, you know, he's woke or, or, or we're back into the 1920s with a fundamentalist modernist controversy. And, and, and this is modernism at, at its very heart is that the gospel doesn't matter. What really matters is the way we express our faith in the social um, climate that we find ourselves in. And so, yeah, I think this has always been a struggle of the church is what I'm saying. And you can't say everything at one time. And yet we have a duty um, as the church to be to be trying to hold this big thing together. And we're not going to do it. Um, we're not able to say everything that we want to say every time. 
And I'm learning that in this, I know I'm far afield from where we were, but, but I think I'm learning that um, patience goes a long way. Patience and conversations go a long way. And that um, pastorally, my work in, in this role here is to listen and hear and to take seriously the criticisms from both sides and to say, oh, here's what people are thinking. Huh, I see why, I see why they would be struggling if I were to say this, that brings them back into a, a trauma of their 1960s mainline experience where the gospel was completely abandoned in, in wholesale in some mainline denominations in order to feed the hungry or to clothe the homeless or, or, or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, and that's, and I, I think that not only that, but if I think of the way that you have worked and Session and Ned have worked to construct the liturgies with the confessions, it's trying to see as a holistic approach. And I, and I know you and I have talked about this, where does the sermon fit in that? And mm -hmm. my brother would always say that the, um, the sermon is the place to preach the full offense of the gospel. And sometimes that means in this text, you're only going to get this one Pauline, Jamesian, you know, yeah. Amosian construct, and it's just not going to be the whole thing. And that's okay, because that's what God wants us to hear today, yeah. but that there's other ways to keep the whole thing. And I, and I guess that's a bit of a pressure on you to make sure that the center parts of the gospel are repeated enough that they're not lost. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's a bit of a challenge, I would imagine. I was reading a book on pastoral ministry, or I'm in the middle of it um, right now, and it's talking about, uh, it's challenging what we think our work is as a pastor. And um, I love the way this author simplified it down. It is to present Christ to your people. Like mm. that is your role as a pastor is to give all, uh, again, that's, there's a way in which you could simplify that in an unhealthy way. Mm -hmm. But I think that is a call to a rich and robust and very big and, and sort of cosmic thing that the work is to present Christ to your people over and over here and there. But it's always giving, giving Christ to his people. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know why we got on this topic, but... Well, I let me come back to it because because I want to I want to add say if you don't mind I want to say one other ask one other thing about one of the statements you made it's my summary not yours yeah but um, I think what you know what you're saying you're exploring this dimension to me you're exploring this dimension of relationship yeah and it's not that the moral part doesn't matter it's it's right. that but in that there's there's interesting that the two pieces the moral piece and the relational are both held together by this you seem to be saying that restoration is not something actually the son did. Mm -hmm. restoration was something the father did which I, I think i think to me ties into this moral thing that it wasn't something because of our sin we could ever accomplish which on the relational side sounds to be about the same thing yeah. because of our brokenness we could not restore that relationship unless the father ran towards us and actually redefined our exile mm. which i think even if the son seemed to accept some of the older brother's criticism before he even said i, I screwed up yeah i'm on work yeah. Right. That that it was the father that not only ran to him. You say, well, the son came first, yes, but the father actually had to redefine the exile mm -hmm. before he even understood what restoration was. Right. So, is it safe to say that the father, whether it's moral or relational, how we see this whole thing, is all done by the father? Yeah. Right. Uh, the father would not have had, and and that's another brilliant thing about the incarnation, mm -hmm. right? 
the incarnation means that moral categories mean something. You know, you know, the incarnation means that um, moral, uh, the way in which we have lived, have have brought that separation. Mm. The separation is is the key. You know, once someone, once the Father moves to us in Jesus. Mm. The fact of his movement means that there has been a gap established, and, and it right. wasn't him. That's so right. yes, that I, I love. I love thinking about it that way. I think that's a helpful way to think about it. But yeah, there. But the idea that the movement is initiated by God means that He is the one that has to cross that chasm mm -hmm. and then bring us back over it Himself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's a, it, it does reframe our exile as both and. And, and that really is the trick, isn't it? Yeah. Keeping those things together, always holding those things together. I want to end this where you, you ended us. Two things. One, the soak up the scene thing you said at the end. Yeah. I think, yeah, I sometimes want to get in and start like chopping this thing up so I understand how the theology works. And you've even said, hey, maybe I'm stretching this a little far because you're, I, I, if I'm reading you right, the intent is not to like turn this into a new approach to systematic theology when it comes to the atonement. Right. And, and there's a sense in which the parables really don't, they don't provide an easy way to systematize them. We, I think a lot of theologians have tried, hmm. but I, I like this soak up the scene thing at the end, like just Maybe we're just supposed to look at the father in the eye and see a man that hikes up his skirts and takes upon himself this public shame because he so desperately loves. Maybe that's just enough to soak up without, not that we shouldn't think theologically, but I think right. that's, that's the theology is the theology right. of love here. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, for me, that was the impact and the import of it, at least um, especially for the son who um, leaves off his demands in mm. the face of that, is mm. that in the face of this, how can I, how can I continue to hold on to anything other than to be overwhelmed by this love? Mm. And I think oftentimes in the course of uh, our work of repentance and, you know, all the work that does really belong to us in returning and, and repenting of our sin, all of that, sometimes we miss that stop and look again at the love and how does this reframe as you as you put it a moment ago how does this love reframe your exile mm -hmm. in a sense doesn't this sort of love not make you less concerned about more moral failings but more concerned more. In, in one sense and and how does this sort of love uh reframe what's possible in the future mm. what i've called our sort of lack of imagination for mm. how things will be restored for us. And um, yeah, I, to me, that this was not a sermon to say, so now go and do X, Y, and Z. It, mm. it didn't seem to fit at the end here. What we're meant to sit with is something that we'll spend the rest of our lives, I hope, uh, plumbing the depths of, as one professor I used to have, mm -hmm would say, but never reaching the bottom of, mm -hmm. you know, you can plumb the depths, but you can never find the bottom of the love and the condescension and the grace in God's love for us in Jesus. And sometimes we need more of that in our repentance rather than 
oh, God has loved me, and now I need to X, Y, Z, go here and go there, the implications of it. Right. That, that's what I mean to say. Instead of rushing to all the implications, to, to sit with it. And what does that do for us? Well, and that goes back to something you said when you started this. Well, I guess it was not this Sunday, the previous Sunday, about the sun coming out of the pigsty was whether this is a problem to solve. Mm -hmm. Certainly there are problems to solve and there are times to solve and there's a time to build and destroy. There's a time yeah. to do these things. But yeah. I think what you've carved out is there's also just a time to just be overwhelmed by it. Um, yeah. and, and, and then let that, you think of, you think of, yeah, even in relations when you, when you really feel connected or love someone, you don't have to be told what to do. Right. You know, <laughs> there's no direction required in some sense. And of course yeah. there is, Paul's got lots of direction, Christ has lots of direction, but yeah. maybe at this moment it's, it's reviving us just to appreciate and, and understand it or to seek it, to pursue yeah. the mystery in some way. If you have to be told to celebrate Tara's love for you on an anniversary or her, her role as a, a, a mom with your kids in the way that makes your family what it is because we know it's not you dan but um <laughs> thanks for no, that if, if you have to be told that that's that's really the issue not that you forgot to say something <laughs> the issue is that you had to be prompted uh, in the first place yeah that it, that's a that's a beautiful and glorious um thing and i think then that allows you to go back as as you've said and to reframe your exodus mm. and to say what is it about this? What is it about my alienation that I was clinging to? Um, what is it about repentance and restoration that seems so um, wearying to me and, and joyless? And, and I think that's one of the things that I've thought about in, uh, about Lent in general is that we've often made this a very dour time. We've thought about, oh, Lent, this is when you give up stuff. This is when... And that's what I wanted to accomplish in one sense with keying in on this story is it's not about that at all. It's about the joy <laughs> over one sinner that repents. And it's about the beauty and the glory and the joy of repentance that uh, our father delights in in us and that we actually find uh, that real home as we give ourselves to his love. Mm. Well, that's 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 very um, that's very moving. Um, maybe, maybe you don't know what being found is like unless you know that you're lost or why you're even lost or what it means to be lost. Right. Yeah. Well, again, thank you, Pastor Luke. I look forward to seeing how you round this out, and then we'll have that gate gap for Easter where we get to celebrate and contemplate the yeah, resurrection, and that'll be exciting. I'm I'm excited for what we've got planned for Easter Sunday. It's going to be a joyful um, couple of surprises. Um, we've got Dan coming in on a zip line from the back. <laughs> we don't have any surprises like that. I'd like you not to announce that to me for the first time while I'm also recording something for the public. Exactly. Let me know that ahead of time. That'd be great. Sorry about that. It's we'll right. talk after we go off air. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor Luke. Thank you. Friends, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about our church and discover additional resources on our website, wheatlandpca.org.